My name is Elifema Chu, and this is Deprivation Discourse. Every episode, I sit down with young people and professionals, and we have a real open discussion about what it is to be a young person in poverty today. You can find out more info about the research project behind this podcast at deprivationdiscourse.com. Today I'm joined by Professor Greta DeFater, uh, who researches poverty with an interest in food programs and food provision uh, at Northumbria University. Thank you so much for joining me today, Greta. You're welcome. If you could talk a little bit about uh, who you are and how you're interested in the research that you've been doing and how you came across it. Sure, no problem. I'm a professor of developmental psychology at Northumbria University and I'm director of the Healthy Living Lab at Northumbria University. Um, I became interested in uh, children's feeding programs, in particular school feeding programs, about 15 years ago. I was in a school conducting some research with one of my PhD candidates and uh, she was actually investigating the effect of breakfast, uh, specifically breakfast cereal, on children's cognition um, in relation to memory and uh, attention. And whilst we were conducting the research in a very controlled way in quite a busy and noisy environment, I noticed at the end of the hall a group of children um, having breakfast. And I spoke to the head teacher and asked her what was going on. And she informed me that it was a school breakfast club. And I asked probably the most stupid question and said, what's that? And she looked at me as though I'd come down from another planet and said to me, well, that's a club where children come into before school to eat their breakfast. And I asked the obvious question of saying, well, why do they have to have their breakfast at school? And the head teacher informed me that a number of her children were attending school without having had anything to eat, often um, all the way back until their free school meal the prior day. So I was watching this very carefully and of particular interest was a little boy who was eating toast and for every piece of toast he was consuming, he was sticking a piece of toast in his trouser pockets. And um, it turned out that this child uh, was um, living in a very uh, poverty-stricken household and was using the toast for his uh, tea evening meal. And so I became really interested in this notion around food insecurity, food poverty, specifically in relation to children and child development. And that led me to then looking at uh, a phenomenon called holiday hunger, uh, which we defined in 2017, which is the first working definition of holiday hunger. Um, and looking at programs that address food insecurity across the holiday period, as well as breakfast clubs. And more recently, I've become interested in free school meals, uh, in specifically in relation to uh, funding for free school meals and what the nutritional value is of the food that's actually delivered on the plate. Firstly, I'll ask about um, when you talk about holiday provision when you talk about these groups um that put on food provision during the holidays i'd love to know more about what you think about that and what you think about it being more than just food for these young people and how it can really benefit their lives okay sure so holiday uh, provision or holiday hunger as it used to be referred to uh, which we defined in a paper in 2017 which is the first um, actual definition of holiday hunger um, as i said it's later now be, um, become holiday provision 
The programs were initially set up uh, based around the fact that children and young people in receipt of free school meals were not getting that food provision across the holidays. Whilst that was good, um, it wasn't addressing the really structural causes of poverty. So it was a bit of a sticking plaster, I think it's fair to say, but a much needed sticking plaster. Uh, when you're hungry, you can't always wait for policy change, so sometimes that takes a long time. But it became uh, quickly apparent that these uh, programs that were running across the country, and we did a full survey uh, by one of my PhD students in 2018, where we looked at the whole um, extent of holiday provision across England um, and who was running the various programs, what kind of funding they were receiving, what activities they were delivering. And through that, in that initial survey, which we ran again um, two years later, it became apparent that the holiday programs were much more than just giving out free food. Okay. If you think about it, a sensible model, if you're just delivering food, is to drive up in a van and deliver food in any car park or school car park, and you can hand out brown paper bags. And none of the programs were doing that. They were all based around cultural, social, physical activities, so day trips out to the beach, we had um, evidence that we collected of children going to the first time for the first time to the seaside, even though they only live 10 miles from the actual seashore itself. We have evidence of children visiting museums, art galleries, and generally um, enjoying and engaging across the summer holiday period, not only in cultural activities and uh, visits and or day trips, but also in learning activities. So they would be playing physically active games that involved maths or spelling, um, as well as eating well and learning about food provenance and cooking skills. So really developing community relationships. The benefit also extends to the actual people running the clubs as well. So they get a really good feeling of self-worth and it provides a much needed investment in communities, the so-called left behind communities to have that community spirit. So it, it, you can clearly see, I'm hoping from what I'm explaining to you, that the programs aren't simply about giving out a free school meal or the equivalent of a free school meal, but they're all the wraparound services and activities as well. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I just think the importance of um, not only food, but having a place to go as well. I think Kellogg's did some research about this a little while ago. Um, and it was about how a lot of young people aren't able to just go out in the school holidays because places cost money and it's hard for parents who can't afford young people to go out and often yeah these these places that provide provision they aren't just a paper bag you know giving out food it's an experience and it's an opportunity for young people to have the summer that their peers have because poverty really does rob children of their childhoods in many ways um i'd like to ask you about hungry for change um I'm really interested in what you've been doing about that. It's been a really important project. The context of this is that um, when I was in um, Poverty Ends Now, which is, uh, well, which was a young person-led um, group that was run by Children Northeast um, and Sarah Bryson, and we looked at the issue of where young people's money would go if they were on free school meals at the end of the day, if they hadn't spent it, whether or not it would still be there the next day, and it's not there the next day. Um, Greta became aware of this and has been doing research about it. Uh, do you want to explain a little bit about that and what you found so far and what's been really important about it? Okay. 
Yeah, so um, as I said, this became, um, well, became apparent to us both through the Children's Future Food Inquiry and also by a report from Citizens Advice UK, I think led by Sarah Bryson, um, looking at what happened to the money um, that was not spent for those uh, children and young people in receipt of free school meals. So typically, uh, children and young people get about £2.30 allocated for their free school meal provision. Um, and the Citizens UK paper specifically focused on secondary schools in England and Wales. Our paper that we wrote on behalf of Feeding Britain, where I'm a trustee, focused on primary and secondary school provision just in England because these, uh, um, the funding for this is devolved to um, states, uh, nation states in terms of the DfE funding. So we just looked at England where we could actually get solid figures from the DfE database itself. So what we did is um, there's been quite a lot of anecdotal data with uh, young people reporting that the money has gone missing. Uh, but we wanted to actually provide some quantitative uh, statistics and data on this. So we looked at the DfE's own website and, and their database that's located on with. And from that, what we did is we calculated the number of children and young people that were means tested. So this is these are children above the age of seven that were means tested. So I, their uh, household income was less than £7,400 per year before benefits and housing. And we calculated the number of children and young people that had claimed a free school meal on a particular day, a census date, and then we compared that to the number of meals actually taken. And we did that by calculating the number of absent pupils. So this isn't looking at partially spend of the £2.30, just for pupils that are absent. And from that, and we think it's a conservative estimate, uh, we calculated there's about £88.3 million per year uh, not oh. counted for in the system. That's incredible. That's it's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. Um, and we think that's a conservative estimate because it only takes into account those pupils that are absent. So in secondary school, if a pupil or young person spends £2 out of their £2.30 allowance as such, if you want to think of it in those terms, um, the 30p also goes absent. And we haven't accounted for that in these data that we're reporting here in this report. Wow. Can you talk about where the money goes? Can you talk about what happens to the money? Um, nobody seems to know, I think, as a, as a fair comment. So we don't know whether the money goes to the local authorities. We don't know whether the money goes to the catering companies. We don't know whether the money goes to schools. Um, and we don't know how the money, wherever it goes, how it's repurposed. So what's it spent on? Mm. So there's no guarantee... Um, if it goes, for example, let's say it goes to schools, and as I said, we don't know, it could be spent uh, anyway or anyhow in the school budget. It's not ring-fenced. So the Minister of Education and Children's and Families is quite specific in saying that this money is not ring-fenced for school meal provision. Um, my argument would be that I think this is a specific case where the money has been granted from the DfE via local authorities to schools for free school meal provision. This is about food provision. It's something that's very, very important. And I think that to take away that option just for free school meal children that could effectively be funding another resource that benefits all pupils at the school is not fair. I'll give the example that if 
um, you or your parents pay for your meals. The money goes on the card or for a biometric system. And if you're absent, that money remains on the card, i.e. it's not spent. And you can buy more food the following day. So if you've been off ill, for example, if you're feeling hungry when you go out to school and you want to eat more, you can spend that money how you wish. So you have your budgeting skills um, as a pupil you would expect in secondary school to use that money. If you're on free, in receipt of free school meals, then that money is wiped from your card that day and it doesn't roll over. So you have not only a question of actually the catch up in terms of nutritional value and maybe additional food intake, but you also have the issue about social injustice. So we have a system where the poorest members of our society are funding something somewhere else um, and not the more affluent peers, which seems totally unjust to me. It is unjust. It's yeah, absolutely. I think what you say as well about how you know the budgeting skills that come from young people having agency over their own the money that they spend every day is key as well because that's a life skill that people get to learn and it seems like that's really being taken from children on free school meals when they don't have agency over where that money goes the next day exactly and it also means that um, you're limited to your choices per day so if you've been absent and your parents or you yourself pay for your school meals, it means that you can supplement the next day and perhaps something nicer or more expensive of the school menu. Whereas if you're limited to the £2.30, you, you never have any kind of like variability in what you can choose. And often the options are very similar. People uh, particularly don't like to choose the more expensive options on free school meals because no one wants the embarrassment of getting to the cash register to be told that you don't have enough money on your account to pay for it. Hmm. So we have different levels of, I would say, social injustice and actually discrimination for those children in receipt of free school meals. And as I said, nobody seems, you know, I've asked um, Frank Field, um, right honourable member of parliament, asked where the money went um, and nobody seems at this stage to provide an answer. Mm. So there's... There's quite a lot of money floating around in the system that is not accounted yeah. for and may not actually be being spent on school meals. It is absolutely incredible to think about how 88 million, which is a conservative estimate, yeah. is that is meant to be being spent on young people's free school meals. So young people who otherwise wouldn't be able to afford a free school, wouldn't be able to afford a school meal is is just out there you know and it's not going towards young people who deserve to be fed you know um i think that is bizarre it's absolutely bizarre how how can we write this injustice you know what are the steps that we talked about ring fencing a little bit do you want to talk about what ring fencing is and how that's really important to solving this issue yeah so ring fencing is the notion where um, a budget has to be spent on what it was designed to be spent for so in the case of free school meals, the budget from the DfE, um, if it was ring fenced at a school level or local authority level, would have to be spent on the service for free school meals. It couldn't be spent on, for example, new play equipment or more books or more computers for the IT suite. It has to be spent on school food. Now, the argument against that would be that schools have to have autonomy over their budgets. And whilst I appreciate this, and at some level I would agree around having autonomy over a budget, I think in terms of school meal provision, it is a specific case where 
you, you, you're not um, balancing the number of history books to the number of uh, literacy books or the number of computers. It is a dedicated service. Moreover, I would argue that free school meal provision needs to be thought of more carefully in implementation in schools. So we have a breakfast club program that's funded by the government that's completely independent to the school dinner or the school meal service, which seems absolutely ludicrous to me because what could potentially be is that you're having two systems. So if, for example, it was integrated as one complete system, the cost would probably be significantly reduced. You could have better control over the provision and you could actually monitor, especially in the younger, uh, for younger children, for primary school children, what they're eating across the school day. Why is this important? Well, it's important in terms of that we are providing food as a uh, state or nation to our children to ensure that they maximize on not only their physical development, but also their cognitive development and educational attainment. Therefore, it's important to monitor, not just put in policies, but monitor the provision and quality of food throughout the school day. And I would actually argue throughout the holiday period as well. Mm. You do not want to have a situation where you have a child going to a paid breakfast club who has breakfast, then that same child goes to a school free breakfast club and has breakfast. Then the school uses some of the leftover food from the breakfast club at break time so the child eats again. And then that child has a free school meal and maybe then a piece of fruit. And you can see how it's really important not to be a nanny state, but to monitor the food provision we have in schools. Moreover, I would argue that just as we have universal infant free school meals, that free school meals should be throughout the whole education system. I cannot find one piece of research evidence, especially in terms of brain development, that says we only offer universal infant free school meals up until the age of seven when it becomes means tested. The take up in colleges is very poor and the take up in universities is non-existent. We know that frontal lobe development happens and occurs up until about the age of 21. And therefore, if we are basing the introduction of um, this service on ed educational attainment and cognitive growth, it would make sense to me to have a universal service that ran or universal provision that ran throughout the time of nursery all the way up to and including university study. It is really interesting, is it? You raise a really interesting point that is that food is so integral to education. It's so integral. And, you know, I, I guess that you can see that in how universal, infant universal free school meals, is that what they're called? Universal infant free school meals, yeah. Universal infant free school meals. And how obviously the importance has been stated there that infants have food. But then, yeah, it's, it's not being looked at throughout the whole education system and it is really important. Um, do you think that there's any kind of argument? I remember reading something and it talked about how um, some parents would complain when there was a free breakfast club in a school about um, it was it was not a good use of money. Do you think there's any kind of argument that, you know, you're talking about how much food should be provided for a young person in a day? So, you know, breakfast clubs, snack time foods, free school meal, um, a piece of fruit, you know. Is there any argument to say that schools shouldn't be providing it um, or, you know, that it's too expensive? What's your opinion on that? 
Okay, so we conducted some research in um, the west of England recently. And you tend to get mixed opinions from parents. So some parents in terms of school breakfast clubs in particular think that children should be fed breakfast at home um, and that's the end of it and it's a waste of school money. However, if you actually look at the cost of breakfast, it's the cheapest meal to give a child during the whole day, whether you have the breakfast at school or you have breakfast at home. I think it doesn't fit everybody, but I think that the model of provision fits a lot of people. So I think that we have to shift our cultural understanding of breakfast and what it means. And I often say this is that you only need one child to be disrupted through a lack of food in the morning of a class of 30 to disrupt the other 29. I think that we need to think carefully about how we engage parents and young people in the introduction of any of these initiatives. I think that often they've been rolled out to mm -hmm. people and parents rather than involving them in the consultation phase where we're looking at models that work in particular communities and how that works. Um, I've recently seen in Scotland a very good breakfast club in a school for secondary uh, age children um, where the actual pupils themselves ran the breakfast club. So they'd actually worked out what worked for them in their school and how it ran and the uptake was really good especially around exam time when people were coming in or studying late mm. the night before so i think that we need to be sensitive to rolling them out but all of the research evidence points to the fact that there are a lot of children in primary schools especially in the more deprived areas coming to school without having had a proper breakfast now a breakfast is, is basically when you break your fast, your overnight fast. And you could say that some parents um, maybe need educating in terms of what constitutes a breakfast. But that sounds a bit patronizing. Most people, if you ask them on the street, will say breakfast is the most important meal of the day. But if you're limited in funds or you're limited in time, it's really hard to ensure that either you provide the correct food or you actually make sure that your child eats that correct food. So I think breakfast clubs have a really important role to play. And I think we just need to shift how we culturally view the role of the school and the role of food within the school, mm. that it's not a separation out of family and school. It can, it can actually equate to both. And far better, even after school, if you look at wraparound care or extended schools after the bell goes at 3.30, is it's far better for your child to be at an after-school club and sit down and eat with uh, their peers than to go home as a latchkey kid and eat something on their own. Mm -hmm. One of the things that you said, I think really struck me, which is about how, you know, the, well, I was speaking to a homeless charity for the podcast yesterday and they were saying that um, the work that they do there, because it's for young people, includes young people and is part of the decision making of the charity and the organization um and it's the same thing you know it's like i think anything that is good for young people and good for parents includes young people and parents you know um and the example of young people running their own breakfast club students running their own breakfast club i think is a really good example of how when young people are a part of a project to alleviate poverty or you know breakfast hunger or holiday hunger it does work for young people i think in in many ways um, I wanted to ask about as well, so we talked a little bit about the research that you're doing with Hungry for Change um, and how, going back to it, the money that 
as we say, the money that's gone missing from preschool meals that are claimed but not taken. I'm really interested to know, and I know we talked about this a little bit before the podcast and I just thought that I'd bring it up now. I'm really interested to talk about um, the real life implications for young people and how it affects their everyday and how it affects the literal food that they eat. So I don't know if you want to go into that and how they vary from school to school. Sure. So the funding is awarded um, approximately £2.30 per child per day on free school meals is distributed from the DFE to the local authorities, which then is distributed either through their meal service to schools or through private caterings. And it was in the 1980s that the actual school meal service became deregulated where private uh, catering companies could bid in for tenders, basically, to deliver the service. The issue, I think, is, is twofold. First of all, you have the issue of social injustice, but you also have the issue that if a child who is paying for a school meal, the money is left on their account, they can go back the following day and, if you like uh, to put it in simple terms, catch up in terms of any nutritional deficit they may have suffered from being ill. Um, They also have more choice over the range of foods that they can choose. And and we all know that if you felt ill, you often get a craving to eat one particular food and you don't fancy, for example, cabbage or whatever, for whatever reason. And those children on free school meals get the same £2.30 as they had the day before. But of course, that money has been wiped. So they don't have that freedom of choice. So nutritionally, you have a differential straight away there. In terms of the um, delivery of the school service, I would be really interested to find out, and we, we haven't got this on the data that's available. If it's a cost per unit, so per child of £2.30, one would um, anticipate that delivery of school food in some services, in some schools, would be more expensive than in other schools, for example, depending on the seniority of the cook at the school, uh, whether they were employed by the local authority or whether perhaps they were employed by um, a private company, you would perhaps envisage differences in pay. Um, Just as all university staff are not paid the same amount, you would expect there'd be slight differences. And I'm interested to um, look and conduct research to look at the actual monetary value of food put on the plate. So this is the monetary value, which equates often to the nutritional value, but not always, of what the children are receiving. So if it's more expensive to provide catering to one school than the other, how is that difference uh, made up or accounted for in the finances? Do the local authorities or the catering companies accept that some schools are just going to be more expensive than the other? Or is it based at a school-based level where, for example, if the staff costs to deliver that service at a school are more expensive than another school, does that have any impact on the quality and quantity of food put on the individual student's plate? And nobody knows. Mm. So we're conducting some research in September where we're actually going out to schools and uh, we've already started a little bit of it this year and we're photographing school plates to look at the same meal served for the same age pupil of the same gender across different schools and you would expect the variance to be small mm-hmm. i don't i don't know so that's a i find that a really interesting question the other question i find really interesting is if the dfe funds at 2 pounds 30 per child 
how is that actually delivered? Because one would anticipate, and according to Public Health England guidelines or any nutritional uh, data you want to look at or guidelines, that a seven-year-old female should eat considerably less in portion size than a 16-year-old male. So how are these portion sizes actually determined? Not through the policy or the guidance, but actually on the ground of what's delivered on that plate. Mm. So that's what that's what we're going to be doing in September. That would be really interesting. That would be really, really interesting, I think, to see just just the reality of how this missing money is affecting young people and has affected young people for so long. And what I find really interesting about it is that, like, you became aware of this through a young person saying the money is going missing that I'm meant to be getting, you know, every day when I'm not in school, it's not there the next day. And it's it's young people who truly feel the the you know the the weight of this issue in a way that I think it's a it's a real shame that it's a structural problem that really does affect the most disadvantaged young people who who need the nutrition and the food every day and deserve to have money roll over as well I think there's a in the research that I did as well this stigma that's attached to people in poverty and being in poverty because of their own personal choices it's kind of the same element of which that you know it 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 doesn't just naturally occur to us I think and it didn't necessarily naturally occur to me that you know of course young people should be getting the money rolled over the next day of course they should be getting the money that is claimed but not taken that day the next day because um they deserve to be able to have those budgeting skills, but also they deserve to be able to catch up on nutrition, as you said. Um, but I think, yeah, it's the stigma that's kind of attached, which is that, you know, they don't deserve to have that choice because people in poverty aren't allowed to have choices. You know, they're not allowed to have options. Um, so, yeah, I, that's just kind of my personal input in that, I think, from from the perspective that I have of stigma and and shame that goes into young people being in poverty. Is there anything that causes this problem? Is there any kind of, because for me, I feel like this problem is caused by a communication breakdown between young people, you know, people in authority, people in schools, people who know where this money is or maybe, you know, are a part of the problem and where this money has gone missing. Um, What what do you think's the problem? What do you think the breakdown has occurred and and now we don't know where where it's going? I think that, the breakdown has probably, if you want to put it like that, has probably occurred in the um, administration of the contracts. That, w- If I was in the DfE, that's where I would be looking um, to, to actually trace the money um, from delivery of money to local authority all the way through the system. Uh, we can't do that because we don't have access to um, those financial records. But that's really what's required to find out and to see, you know, there could be different contractual arrangements across the country, Mm. right? So if the local authority puts this out for tender, what's, you know, what's the tender? What are the, you know, I'm not blaming a local authority or a catering company here. I'm just saying that it's not clear to me how that system works in terms of universal provision. And what we don't want is we don't want a postcode lottery Mm. where if you you know you've got a catering one particular catering company is offering x another one is offering y perhaps because of size of the catering company perhaps something at the local authority this this is a centrally funded government scheme you should be able to go anywhere in the country and have 
relatively the same school meal. Now, obviously, there's going to be variants and we want people to use local produce and things like that. So I'm not saying every plate should be exactly the same. <laughs> that would be ridiculous. But there should be a uniformity. You wouldn't expect to go to one school, a state-funded school, and have English lessons for an hour a day and go to another school and have them for two hours a day. It, it would seem ludicrous to people. And it's the same type of equality around that provision that I think should be there. Mm. But my argument would be that if we truly think that it's important for development, then why is it just not universal for all, all children? Cognitive and physical development doesn't stop at the age of seven. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I... I unless it's a funding issue, I cannot see the rationale of not having universal free school meal provision across mm. all ages throughout the education system. Yeah. Well, I, 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 haven't, I can't see one piece of research evidence that would suggest that would not be a good idea. Mm. And then you get away from the stigma of it because that's just the system. Yeah. You go to school... And the school has a breakfast club Mm. and the school has lunch. And if perhaps if you're in secondary school, you have the autonomy of spending, in inverted commas, that money throughout the day. So you may decide that you don't want to spend very much at lunch. You may be a teenager that finds it difficult to get up in the morning. Um, I know I did when I was a teenager. (laughs) And therefore, you want to spend more of your money in the afternoon healthy tuck shop. That's absolutely fine. Yes, that's what your body's telling you. Similarly, when you're looking at then using that provision, a free school meal provision across the summer holidays, that could easily be rolled out across the summer holidays. So you're saying that a child or a young person is important and their right to food, the availability of healthy food is important throughout the year, not just in the summer holidays, not just at school, not just before school, but that should be a right. And if we're seriously going to address things like the obesity crisis, various food deserts that are often in um, disadvantaged communities, and actually general health, well-being, improvement in educational attainment, then the easy fix, and I love when I say the easy (laughs) fix, because it's not that easy, and I appreciate the government ministers wouldn't find it easy, would be to have a uniform system throughout the whole year that's Mm. delivering food. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? It makes a lot of sense when you think about it like that. And yeah, when you when you truly appreciate the the benefits and the importance of food as well, which I think is often forgotten in the school day. And one really key point that you made there that I just wanted to bring up was I remember when we were working in this in Poverty Ends Now, and it was about how you could only spend the money. I think this was in secondary schools, but it was only you could only spend the money, the free school meal money that you got. Uh, at lunchtime correct so yeah so yeah. it's <laughs> and that's that's everywhere isn't it you can only spend it at lunchtime everywhere yeah so it's just like it's not allowing young people even the agency to know when they're hungry and when they want to have their food i thought that was incredible when we were looking into it because there is well that's that's what the research is what my research is about but there is just such nuanced but important differences in the school day from a young person that's in poverty or on free school meals or disadvantaged economically to a young person that is able to, you know, go and spend their food money whenever they want or um, to have, you know, food that is, you know, healthier or which is usually more expensive within school canteens. Um, you said something really interesting before as well about 
before we started recording about food running out and often it's cheap food that runs out in school canteens and how um, young people who are on free school meals, you know, when the food runs out because they don't always provide people who are catering, um, they don't always provide for older young people on free school meals depending on how much um, attendance there is on what the percentage of attendance is. It's the it's the cheaper food that runs out, which means that children on free school meals often miss out in that way because they don't want to face the embarrassment of um, having to pay for something that they can't afford. And it, it just, it, you know, it continues the cycle of stigma attached to being embarrassed that they can't afford food, um, but also the food not being available for them. And it's just a really nasty cycle. Exactly. So if you're on a late lunch sitting, um, I've spoken to young people that say all they can afford is the one pound small pizza. And if you actually look at that nutritionally, um, and if you're having that frequently across every day, um, especially for some of the um, older lads, it's simply not enough. No, of course that's, not. That's, that's the end of that. You know, it's, it's not enough. And they, they choose it not just because um, they particularly like it, and I don't think they always do, but they choose it often because they don't want the stigma of ending up at the cash point and not having enough money. Mm. So what you do is you actually introduce a different way of children or young people knowing poverty in the school day. So in my days, it used to be um, free school meal children, I can remember, used to queue up and go in through a different door and sit at a different table. They used to have a different uh, color lunch as such um, to get their, their school dinner. What we've done, though, is we have advanced in a digital world to replace that with a discrimination that's equally as appalling, just different. Mm -hmm. So now the discrimination is in the fact that the money is wiped. Mm -hmm. So that and that's that's quite interesting. It's not overt, but children know and and children and young people um, know if someone's choosing pizza, that one pound pizza on a regular basis. You know, children, when we're looking at poverty proofing the school day, which I know children North East have done a lot of work around, mm-hmm. it's very easy to see. You only have to look at food choices. If someone's consistently going for the cheaper options, the £2.30 free school meal, inverted commas tag, then you know by, by default, even whilst it's meant to be anonymous in terms of the cashless system or using biometric data, it's really clear to see. I would also extend that to say when we look at issues um, around holiday provision and all of these I think have to be taken into the context that they're not addressing the root structural causes of poverty but they are a ways of alleviating poverty until we address the bigger structural issues is that if you run um, holiday provision um, just for those children that are on free school meals it becomes stigmatizing If holiday provision is run in a very careful way, where perhaps you're using the biometric data collected across schools to say some parents will pay, some children will get that provision for free and nobody knows, that provision can be uh, located either within a church or a community centre, sports leisure centres, a school, universities, why not? We, We should open up our doors for our communities. Then... Children and young people, first of all, there's no stigma because it's open to everybody. It's a resource. It's a community resource. It doesn't matter. Um, 
Those that can afford to pay can contribute to running the program. Those that can't will get it free. That could be done through the free school meal um, electronic system. And it also means that you're widening the opportunities for children to have autonomy or agency over the choice of venue they want to go to. Some of the most disadvantaged uh, and most disaffected young people don't want to particularly go to the school during the summer holidays. It's a school holiday. It's a holiday from school. That would be like me asking all of my research staff to spend their holidays coming to university. (laughs) They don't want to do it. Other children are quite happy to go to school. I don't think that we should be too prescriptive on where the location is. I think that we could fund such a scheme. And as I said, if we make this food provision universal, not only are we helping to reduce the stigma, but we're also attacking and having impact on issues such as educational attainment gaps, health inequalities, whilst also investing in some of these left behind communities. Yeah, I really like the idea of giving young people agency about where they want to go for these uh provisions as well i know that south tyneside uh are doing some really good holiday provisions um one of them is at simon side climbing wall which is where i used to go when i was a young person um <laughs> when i was small enough to be on the climbing walls um but yeah and they they do really good things there as well because um young people can access free food in the holidays when otherwise they they wouldn't have it but at the same time they come with their friends or you know people that I knew they came with their friends because it was a nice social time where they got to go on a climbing wall for free which otherwise would cost so it was a new experience exactly. and yeah and it's it's the same thing you know it's given young people agency to be able to yeah say I don't want to go to school you know during the holidays and going somewhere else that that gives them new opportunities you know or, or even having mixed provisions so at the moment a lot of the schemes are set up that the child um it's almost forced in some way to go to the same provision across the whole of the entire holiday. Mm. What I think would be better, who wants to do that? No one wants to go and stay in the same bed and breakfast in Blackpool for all six weeks. No disrespect to people that run <laughs> in Blackpool. But um, I think that giving uh, young people and children agency, it means that they could go to, for example, perhaps a school scheme for a couple of weeks and then they could go to another scheme that's offering different provisions. So mm-hmm. this would need some coordination at a local level to ensure that we're offering multiple opportunities. So as you pointed out, it may be that you go for two weeks on you spend time on the climbing wall. But after that, if you're not really into climbing, maybe that doesn't appeal so much. And another scheme, for example, a university has a swimming uh, pool session every week. And that's something you really want to do. So if we think creatively... And we think almost in disruptive design of the system, we can have a suite of opportunities that are non-stigmatizing for young people, offer food provision, but the food provision is purely to enable them to develop. And we offer all of these other exciting, wonderful opportunities. So um, I've just written a report uh, in a working paper that's looked at the role of universities in holiday provision. So universities, as most people are aware, the students go home at the end of the summer term and a bit like where we're sitting today, they're a bit like a graveyard and it's only normally um, the staff that are in working and doing other things. But universities are really well equipped. Universities have a mission um, for widening participation and access. So why not open the doors up? Uh, We typically run most university paid schemes that are focused mainly, I would say, in terms of staff. So staff to enable to work through the summer holidays, which is absolutely wonderful. 
But we can easily open up schemes um, such as that to provide bigger provision. Um, we have academics in, we can provide mini workshops on exploding custard all the way to how to cook a healthy meal. We have nutritional scientists at most universities to geography, to theatre, to creative arts. There's a whole range of opportunities um, that universities can offer. And often they have really good resources. So we have climbing walls, we have swimming pools, we have gyms, we have basketball courts, we have football pitches. The list goes on and on. So I think that what I would urge the government to do is to think in a quite a radical way of how we address um, school feeding programs, if you like to call them that. I would say that any school feeding program is much more than that, even if it's sitting down at, in a school time and sharing food with your friends, it becomes more of a social. We, we, we tend to forget the what we call the social geography of eating. It's not just about consuming food for all of the nutrients and macronutrients and micronutrients. We could easily do that with a, a liquid food. It would be very efficient to do. It's about enjoying food. It's about understanding the provenance of food. And I think it's something the government needs to urgently look at, especially in light of the predicted increases in food costs as a result of Brexit. Mm. last question last question for the end of the podcast is that really short really succinct I'm not going to ask you for three words or something because I think three words is far too short for all the things that you talked about but what is what is the ask what is what is the ask of all the research that you've done what are your recommendations okay social justice equality action Thank you so much, Professor Greta. I've had, it's been a really interesting podcast. I hope everyone enjoys it as much as I have. You're welcome. Thank you.